You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. So we're going we're gonna to actually talk a little bit about marriage today as part of our lead up, actually our last lead up message um, uh, for right now. I wonder if anyone have, has these mer- verses memorized yet. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands. He led them. Now, this, um, this will be the end of this particular series. For now, I will circle back in other areas coming up, but it's not the end of our challenge about leading and leading up. In fact, Pastor Tony will be doing uh, three different, what we're calling lead up labs. First one beginning in April. There'll just be three weeks each here in the sanctuary on Wednesdays. And the first one she's going to be teaching on is leading as a relational leader, becoming a relational leader. So lead up is not going anywhere. The six lead up circles, uh, as a reminder, here are the six Uh, circles that God's calling us to lead and lead up in are self, circle number one. We All leadership begins with self-leadership. And there's our family and our church. We dealt with church last week. Our community, our workplace, and our world. And I'll circle back into those. So far, I've spoken mainly around sheep pens. I've spoken about uh, what, what it means to have integrity of heart and skillful hands Today I'm going, to little, I'm going to focus more on, on what those are applied to, shepherding and leading, and specifically about shepherding and leading our families and what that looks like. So as a reminder, the three leadership hurdles still apply to every time that God's calling us to lead up, right? And as a reminder, all spiritual leadership is spiritual discipleship, okay? And so any, any of those movements are always going to be opposed And here are three ways in which I've kind of generally identified how that opposition happens. One, Satan opposes all God movement. Anytime you're going to make any movement towards him in a discipleship role, in a leadership role, it's always going to be opposed. He'll find different ways to oppose it. There's no way to outline them all, but you have to recognize that any pushback that you experience is a result of Satan opposing you trying to step up in these circles specifically the one today about your family. Um, Two is that leaders with the most potential rarely realize it. These are the voices we hear inside our own heads just talking about our lack of ability, our lack of value, our lack of opportunity, or those kind of things, right? The enemy puts those thoughts into our minds and you think it's you thinking it because it sounds like your voice, but the seeds of those things aren't from the Father. All right, you can always tell who's talking to you based on the tone in which you're hearing it. Okay, and it sounds like your voice demeaning you or shaming you. I'm telling you the seeds of that are not from the Father. Those are lies from the enemy. He, he's, he's great at mimicking your voice and your feelings, okay? But the seeds of that aren't from him. So the leaders with the most potential rarely realize it because you're, you're giving in to those other voices inside of your head and specifically as it relates to your family, okay, today, 
and leading your family. The third is it's easier to go with the flow than lead a movement. There's always going to be a pushback when you step taking more um, spiritual, biblical steps in your family. When, when you decide you're going to draw certain lines for your family that doesn't fit the cultural standards, we all still live in this culture, okay? And so when we start drawing lines in terms of not based on cultural standards, but based on biblical or personal conviction standards from the Holy Spirit, all right, the, those things will be opposed in a variety of different ways. And what you have to worry about then is, am I going to, if I'm, am I going to give in to the outside pressure or am I going to trust what I'm experiencing through the Holy Spirit and his word that this is the best route for my family, regardless of what someone else or something else will say, right? Um, we know that as parents. We know that's a difficult task as parents, but it's also a difficult task, I think, as a husband and wife. There's an old phrase used to describe someone in an impossible situation. It's called up a creek without a paddle, Right? Without a paddle indicates that there's no answer for the current taking us in a particular direction, that we have, we have no, um, not even defense mechanism for it, we have no offensive mechanism to take us where we want to go or we, where we feel like God's trying to take us, all right? We, we're up a creek without a paddle. Little or no means of health and vibrancy against the class five rapids that our culture brings against us. Parents are consistently being told that they don't matter. Have you, do you know that? You, you, you pick up on that. I mean, I picked up on that first and with iCarly. Some, some people would recognize a Disney show of iCarly where she, what, her parents weren't even in the apartment. And she was living a pretty cool life. I don't know, with a brother or an uncle or you know, whatever, what it is. And, and so it's, it's interesting then the subtlety that we go from parents really aren't that necessary for their kids' development. Don't think I'm just going off the deep end here to there's no need to have any discussions with a parent over a kid's um, uh, confusion over their sexual identity. I mean, that's, like a, that's only like a 15-year jump right? Or less. And so, so culture's told, they're telling us to a variety of ways and means that parents aren't necessary, that your role isn't significant enough in your kid's life. We're consistently being told that a husband and a wife aren't necessary for a healthy family, that there's, that there's other ways to do this. And so that's why I'm talking about shepherding and leading your family. Now, when the David uses shepherd and, and leading in that passage, and he shepherded them with integrity of heart, semicolon, and with skillful hands, he led them. The, the implication is shepherding and leading um, are, are similar, are interchangeable, and yet I don't want us to lose the nuance because there's particular nuance between shepherding and leading. Does a leader shepherd? Yes. Does shepherds lead? Yes. But they're different bents depending on your bent in terms of shepherding and leading. So just hang with me a minute. Shepherding, a shepherd tends to feed, uh, tends, feeds, and protects, okay? Primary role of the shepherd, tends, feeds, and protects. So to tend is to be watchful and observant and to be tender towards, right? Tends, tender, 
all right? Makes sense to be tender towards. A shepherd leads each person in the family according to their own unique gifts, needs, and bents. That, that's, a, that's a shepherding posture. To feed, provide nourishment, health, growth, vitality. And then to protect is twofold. One, it's to stand up for and stand in between trouble. We've all heard the phrase mother bear, right? You, you don't want to get between a mama and her, and her kids, right? So, so there, there's, there's, a, there's a stand between, stand up for. But listen, there's also a teaching our kids how to stand up for themselves, right? Because we're not always going to be able to stand in that gap for them. So there has to be training along the way that we, we build up the backbone in our kids to identify certain things and stand up against that. that that's a shepherd. A leader, a leader presses and a leader guides forward. Presses and guides forward. To lead and guide is to take my family somewhere and shape them on the journey. All right? So, so I've, I've bolted it down this way. Shepherds shape through care. Leaders shape through movement. Now, a shepherd leadership style has to guard against a lack of movement. Okay, because they're going to be more interested in just everybody being okay and safe and feeling good. And many times that can be at the expense of taking them somewhere. Okay? Now a leader, the challenge for the leader is the current well-being of the family because they want to get somewhere. And if you're missing a foot when you get there, that's okay, we're there. Right? And so, so those, we, we, need, we need shepherds in our family. We need leaders in our family. Because, look, here's, here to me is the, the big push for this two-parent husband-wife household because there's going to be different bents between the spouses. There's going to be a spouse in, in general that's going to ha maybe have a more shepherding more shepherding posture, and there may be one that's got more of a let's get moving posture. And, and both of them, both of them is, I see, I see, I see actually conversations happening right now between husbands, <laughs> husbands and wife trying to say, no, you're not. Yes, you are. No, you're not. Um, but both, both um, are what kind of makes up what the, um, the phrase is called the nuclear family. The nuclear family. And again, like I said, from cartoons to talking heads, we're bombarded with the notion that the nuclear family is antiquated, that it's unnecessary, and it's even a dead idea. And this is simply not true. Study after study, article after article, demonstrates that the healthiest families that shape the healthiest children are nuclear families. Now, let me, let me pause here a moment and say, this is not a commentary on the quality of the family that you grew up in. And it's not an attempt for anyone to try experience any kind of shame of whatever situation you've been dealt with right now. Shame is what the enemy does with good information from the Father. Redemption and change and hope is what comes from the Father. Okay? So... So there's been this evolution of trying to redefine the family to compensate 
for all the bad things that's happened in families, okay? And it makes sense because if, if, it's, if it's not gonna be one way, we gotta find a way to healthily, in a healthy manner, grow our family. And so the idea of it takes a village to raise a family is, is a construct and, it's, and it's, it's a healthy construct, but nonetheless, it's a construct to realize of the breakdown of a nuclear family, the, um, the live-in partners in a family. I, I, I understand what happens. I understand how that, how that goes about, but it works against God's original design of this healthy nuclear family. So you can imagine my surprise when I'm doing research for this that I happened on an article from The Atlantic. The Atlantic, if you're not familiar with it, would not be considered a conservative Christian value publication. Okay, you're familiar with it. And so here was an article that I read from February 21st, 2020. It was entitled, The Nuclear Family is Still Indispensable. Here was, a, here was one line in it. The search for alternative forms of family has two major flaws. First, there's evidence indicating that the nuclear family is, in fact, recovering. Second, a nuclear family headed by two loving married parents remains the most stable and the safest environment for raising children. From The Atlantic, Brad Wilcox, How Boyd Authors. Um, the, the authors note that there are legitimate reasons for concern about the state of the American family, but that the divorce rate is down falling 30% since the peak of 1980. In 2014, the share of kids in, in intact families had begun to climb, reversing a decades-long trend in the opposite direction. They cited a University of Virginia study that the nuclear family headed by two married parents remains a personal ideal even among men and women who harbor no moral objections to alternative family structures. That, it, that's, that it is still a target. Other studies in the article found that the, while the family structures, other family structures have surfaced, each falls short of the power of the nuclear family in terms of emotional and physical well-being. And the last section of their article reads this way. Communities are stronger and safer when they include lots of committed married couples. This to me is part of the value of raising a family in a local church because we do become this village. It's good news then that the share of children being raised by their own married parents is on the rise. Extended kin can and sometimes must play a greater role in meeting children's needs. But as any parent knows, when it comes to an inconsolable child, even a dozen pairs of arms from a village don't quite compare to the warm and safe embrace of a mom and dad. Hmm. Now, we are where we are, you are where you are. But I want to address the key to leading up in your family circle, if you are married, if you are married, the key to leading up in your family circle is loving your spouse. It is the foundational key to leading up in your family. Marriages, they can drift over time. One of the ways this happens is that disappointments get swept under the rug until they pile up into discouragements. Dismissed and undisclosed discouragements create distance. Over time, somebody in the relationship recognizes the distance 
but then is so discouraged by the distance that they don't feel like that that distance is able to be bridged. Your paddle in a creek like this is to begin loving your spouse differently. And when you get in circumstances like this, these, these disappointments and discouragements, these are the current that makes it feel and seem as if you can't love one another the way in which God had designed us to love one another. In, um, in Paul's quintessential address to married couples in Ephesians 5, he uses words like submit and reverence and respect and he does so as love descriptors. So in fact, when I read the passage, anytime you hear those three words, you can interchange the word love for them and still get the meaning of the passage because there are ways in which love happens. Um, this is a simple passage to understand. There are no great intellectual divides to cross, but simple does not mean easy to implement. Simple just means it's straightforward. But then having to work through what, it, what, what will I have to do or think differently in order to follow the pattern of scripture, there becomes a challenge because we have all those hurdles. We have Satan opposing the God movement. We have inside our mind telling us that we can't do this. And then if we do something different in our family, what's that gonna look like with everyone else around us? But you need to know that the power of love is not a sentiment. The power of love is always gonna be found in movement. I can tell you I love you all the time and it is not a relevant statement if there isn't movement in my life towards you. The power of love is not in the emotion of love. The power of love in a marriage is living up to your pledge when you were bright-eyed and you both thought that you could just conquer the world. And then what happens? Well, life happens and you lose your paddle sometimes, right? So here's how Ephesians 5 reads. Verse 21 to me is a foundation for the whole thing. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. My paraphrase would be, Love one another out of love for Christ. Loving one another looks like submission to another. Submission means to place your rank underneath the rank of someone else. It doesn't say you don't have authority. It doesn't say that you don't have a rank. It is a choice that's made to take my rank and place my rank underneath your rank. And the purpose for doing so happens because I have put myself under the rank of Christ. Both have realized that we were unlovable and yet loved and restored by Christ from the cross. So I place my authority and rank underneath Gina's out of reverence to the love I've received from Christ on the cross that was an undeserved fashion. I, I didn't do anything to earn that. So as such, she doesn't have to do anything to earn my submission, 
putting, placing myself underneath her or her placing herself underneath me. I, my question is, well, how does anything get done if we continue to say no after you, no after you, no after you, no after you, right? It's more along the lines of rank. You know, when you're in the military, you use your rank. I outrank you. At work, you know who outranks you, right? It, 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 it's used to say, no, I, I, we're done with this discussion. <laughs> I outrank you. I can tell you that I can use that as a tool in my leadership belt in my house maybe once. <laughs> and right? And then that one's expired. <laughs> right? So, so what happens is because of the respect that I have for Gina and the respect that she has for me, you say, well, my husband hasn't done anything to be respected. My wife hasn't done anything to be respected. I, I, I understand I am a human being. I've been doing this a long time. I, I, I understand that. But that's why verse 21 is so important that I've kind of got to go back to and what has Christ done for me? And why would he couch this under the, the banner of what he's done for me? Because he knows how difficult this is when you put two human beings with their own personalities and ideas together that there's gonna be need for some arbitrator, if you will, to place both of us under at the same time. Because I can assure you that two becoming one is a challenge. And yet, it's not put out as a challenge in Genesis, it's put out as a goal. It's put out of, man, when this happens, boy, this is what, this is what I've designed marriage to do. It's not easy to achieve, it is this, but it is something to run towards. And we only can do that out of the power of Christ inside of us. So after establishing that foundation, it goes on to verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. What did I say at the beginning? That whenever you hear submit, respect, revere, you can replace the word love. So my paraphrase, wives, love your husbands like you love the Lord. Wives, place your rank underneath the rank of your husbands as you have placed your rank underneath the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going on to say you're on the same team. You have the same value and purpose but you are to voluntarily place yourself under your husband's authority as an expression of your love. Now, the reason why I know that is a heavy statement is because you're uncomfortable hearing it and I'm uncomfortable saying it. Okay? Has this passage been manipulated? Yes. Most certainly. But does its manipulation change its meaning. Does the manipulation change the power in it? Does the manipulation change the instruction? Or has it been what humans always do to things of God is pervert it? That's what redemption is for. God creates perfect. We pervert it. He redeems it. 
So what you, what, you, what you have to try to do is hear the passage in the redemptive point in which it's written on how two people become one and lead their families in a shepherding, leading manner. And he begins, ladies first, I guess, right? He begins with wives, then submit your rank. Love, this is how you love and express your love to your husbands, love is a choice. It is a choice. Submission is a choice. Next, Paul turns his attention to the husband's role in the loving relationship. It's interesting that he gives three verses of instruction to wives, seven, and an illustration to husbands. It's never been lost on me. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle. This is his illustration. Or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So the love that Christ has for the church changes and transforms the church. The love of the husband for his wife changes and transforms his wife. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of this body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Um, so interesting, no descriptor word for, for love here. No, no submit, no serve, no reverence. It's here. He just uses the word love. But the, the word he uses for love is its own descriptor. It is agape love. It is the unconditional love that we receive from Christ. What does that mean? That means, uh, Romans says, Paul says in Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? So, the unconditional love that the Father has for us is regardless of where we are or what we're doing, his love can't be greater for us than it's already been exhibited on the cross. Okay? That is unconditional love. So, gentlemen... He doesn't give a descriptor other than our love for our wives is unconditional. It's unconditional. It's so unconditional, the way in which we demonstrate this is we continually sacrifice ourselves for our wives. That we continually put our wives above ourselves. Now, the way you can get misogynist in this passage is you don't read the, you don't read the whole passage. At any, any state of scripture, when you take it out of context, you rob it of its power. You can manipulate anything when you take it out of context. But we read scripture in context. And in context, we've started out by submitting ourselves one another that we don't pull rank on one another. Because we're all underneath the love of Christ. And then when he goes to the wives, it's particularly important to me, and I'll get it to you in the last verse, is there's a way in which your husbands receive love. It's different in the way in which you receive love. It's communicated differently. It's received differently. We have different things we have to put down in order to love one another. And when it gets to this passage, he's saying, husbands, the sacrifice that you make for your wives is what communicates love to her. This is what and how you are to love. Now, you can see then when someone is in sacrificial mode for one spouse 
and the other one's in sacrificial mode for the other spouse. You can see how no, one, no one's urged to pull any rank. There's no need to pull any rank because we rank the same under Christ. Um, it just doesn't always happen that way, does it? So here's the big finish. This is a profound mystery. Really? <laughs> you bet your life it's a profound mystery, right? Is it, so, so don't, I know it's, it's funny, but don't lose the context. It is a mystery that Christ redeems us. When you sit in that for a moment, it, that is a mystery of what he ever saw in us. He sees himself in us. And as mysterious as it is that Christ would come and die for us, it is a mysterious thing to think about dying for one another in a marriage. This is a highly spiritually charged union. It, it is used as a demonstration of the love of God. So doesn't it make sense then that marriages are the single most opposed relationship that there is? That, that, that we're getting more and more to the place that we have to defend that one man with one woman for life is God's plan. And he's speaking in a culture where a man could divorce his wife for burning the toast. Okay? Now listen, I know that in settings like this, and I'm sure there are people, you're, you're divorced, you're remarried, um, the, the, the gamut of relationships in a congregation would make this thing a taboo topic. Right? Pastor, don't preach on this, man. Do something else that makes me smile. And I would say, then that's not leading you or shepherding you. It's not doing either one of those. Okay? If you can hear it from a shepherd's tone. Okay? If you can hear this message from a shepherd's tone. So, he goes on in that passage. Um, However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Here's my paraphrase. Marriage is a deep and layered relationship, as deep and layered as Christ's love for his church. And although I've just talked about a profound mystery, here's what you are to do. Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must love and respect her husband. So, Gentlemen, to wives, loves look like, love looks like, feels like, and is received when their husbands unconditionally and sacrificially choose their wife over themselves. Wives, to husbands, love looks like, feels like, and is received when their wives unconditionally respect and trust their husbands. Now, I know you could put a lot of caveats there. I know you can say, well, he doesn't deserve my trust. You can say, my wife doesn't deserve my sacrificial, um, sacrificing my wants, my needs over her needs because she's done so and so and such and such and he's done so and so and such and such. I understand that's be that we're, we are human and that happens, but this is what I'm talking about. The disappointments when they're undisclosed they pile up underneath a carpet and they create an obstacle 
that can be tripped over, which I'm calling discouragements. Now I start getting hurt over what's going on. A disappointment left unattended turns into a discouragement. Discouragement turns into a distance. And there is a surefire way to end distance. And that is one party make a movement towards the other party unconditionally. Well, pastor, you don't understand because he's still walking in that direction. He will have to live with those choices. But as much as you can, walk towards him. Now, I know we can get into a lot of, a lot of nuances here about um, uh, well-being and those kind of things. Just, just give me the leeway not to have to address every situation, okay? Um, gentlemen, your wives are distant, quiet, and withdrawn, and getting deeper into that hole. Do you just get offended? Um, do you just say, fine, I'll take care of myself? Or do you make more unconditional efforts towards her? Listen, I, I grew up in a family where my father was not a believer and my mother was a believer. And I, I saw her pursuit of him. And I saw when it wasn't working. <laughs> and, I, and I saw when he was an idiot. And I saw when she was just other words in the sense that she just was so daggum stubborn. My mom was a stubborn woman and it kept her in a marriage relationship, but it also kept some distance there. But I, but I know what it looks like to have that tension working in a marriage that has to get worked through. But I also saw when they got it right and wow, when I saw my dad realize that they were where we were where we were in the business because of my mom's tenaciousness with the business. And I saw the joy they had when, some, when they were building something together. Family, sometimes you're not making any progress to something because you've never talked about what you're trying to build together. And I get surviving is a goal. <laughs> but, but you have to have something greater vision for your family than surviving. What are you building together? How has God wired both of you together to build that? How do you work off of your own insecurities, gentlemen? Ladies, if you're wondering why in the world does my husband need respect, it's because we have been wired with insecurities. And if you're for us, we can do just about anything. If you challenge, if it's a continual challenge and question and this and that, it just erodes. You say, well, I wish I would have married a stronger man. So does every woman <laughs> I've ever met. So I, wish, I just wish I'd have married a stronger man. And the marriages that thrive is when the wife says, I'm going to build me a stronger man. And you say, well, that shouldn't be my responsibility. I understand. But by just infusing some courage into your husband, some, we can do this. You can do this. You, you don't have to do a lot for them to start believing in themselves. And guys, 
there, 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 is this, there is still this, and as much as culture wants to wipe it out in you ladies, and listen, you can run a Fortune 100 company, and I don't care. I, I still think it's woven inside of you to be loved and cherished. It doesn't mean that you're less of an intellect or power. It doesn't mean that. There is this wanting to be loved and cherished. And gentlemen, I married a strong woman. I, she, beat, she can beat me in arm wrestling. I mean, I, I'm, so, I mean I've, I've married a strong personality in the sense you, never, you wouldn't believe it, right? Because she seems mild-mannered and all that. She's not. <laughs> She's in here so I can talk about her. When, when she decides that this is going to be done or that's not going to be done or I'm not going to talk to her that way anymore, she's got a backbone. But I can tell you, I know that she wants to be loved and cherished. And when I just dismiss the fact that she's a strong woman and she can take care of herself, I'm doing my marriage a disservice. So loving and cherishing my wife, the way she will hear it and receive it is when I choose her over me. And gentlemen, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I'm, I, I can choose me easily. I can choose me easily. I can choose I want to sit in that chair. I can choose if I want that car. I can choose me a lot. It takes a lot of... Um, forethought in order to choose my wife. And when these are done unconditionally, it seems unfair. It seems unfair that they get this from me and I'm not getting this from them. And I've got to encourage you, 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 you the, the least that you can think like that, the better off your marriage is going to be. If you're worrying about keeping score, you're always going to keep score. You're just always going to keep score. If you're going to lock into, this is what God's called me to do. So listen, when God calls us to do something, he empowers us to do it. The way he empowers us to do it is when we submit ourselves to him. Not something I do out of my own strength. Something I do because this is this mystery, he said, and I trust him, and I'm going to do this. So, um, here's how verse 33 reads out of the Amplified Version. However, each man among you, without exception, is to love his wife as his very own self, with behavior worthy of respect and esteem. Do you notice that? With worthy of respect and esteem? Always seeking the best for her with an attitude of loving kindness. And the wife must see to it that she respects and delights in her husband, that she notices and prefers him and treats him with loving concern, treasuring him, honoring him, and holding him dear. I told you, the reason why I like the Amplified Version is because it takes these words that have so much nuance to them and it blows, it blows them out. And I'd encourage you to find this note and, and rewrite it out of the Amplified somewhere on a card, stick it somewhere that you can see it often because this is our goal. Team, come on up. This is our goal. All right, let me land this plane. 
Um, I have lost count of how many um, engaged couples I've done premarital counseling for. And, um, and I have a phrase around premarital counseling. It's that premarital counseling is wasted on the premarital. <laughs> I won't marry anyone that I don't do premarital counseling with. But I haven't had a premarital counseling session once where um, uh, the, the girl is not Google-eyed for the boy and vice versa. Um, the best premarital counseling is to cause a fight and see how they handle it. <laughs> but I've also stepped into a lot of marriage fights too where the uh, bright eyes and the idealization that we can conquer the world together is gone. Just gone. Um, too much water under that bridge, too much hurt. How does it get there? Just life beats us up. Um, unresolved stuff in our past starts creeping up. Missed expectations. Um, unverbalized expectations. Right? We, don't, we don't talk about what those expectations are. We expect the other spouse just to know it somehow instinctively. Um, it, it's, it's not that, that marriage isn't work. It's just it's the best work. And it, and it impacts everything else in your life. It impacts your, your kids. It impacts how you work. It impacts your goals. It just impacts everything. I'll tell you that when Gene and I are not okay, nothing in the world's okay. And when Gene and I are okay, really doesn't matter what comes up. Just, it just seems like we're going to get through this together. Um, and sometimes we're, we get flat on our back because of it. And other times we, we charge the mountain and win, but um, losing together and winning together is the win. Satan, on the other hand, wants to leverage your past and your hurt and your disappointments and your discouragements. He wants to leverage those to continue to undermine and erode you and your wife, you and your husband. That's what he wants to do. Same circumstances, but God has one intent for them and the enemy has the other intent for them. Who do we yield to? Who do you read? So let me just end with... Um, there is a path, there is a path to marriage restoration and just not many people want to take it. And it's called repentance and mourning. Repentance and mourning. Repentance isn't, I'm sorry for what I've done, please forgive me. That's an apology. And there's plenty of things that we have to apologize for, okay? But that's an apology. Repentance is, I'm sick to my stomach for what I've done. I don't ever want you or I to ever experience or feel this way ever again. That's repentance. I, 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 heard, I heard this in a, in a um, I was listening to someone preach this week. And it was in a different context. But he, he brought up the difference between repentance and apology that I put in here. Because he said this, God doesn't ever forgive an apology. God never promises to forgive an apology. Telling God, I'm sorry I've done something, I'm sorry this way, doesn't get a response from God. What does? Repentance. 
and he always redeems repentance. Always. So I will say, your spouse doesn't want or need an apology from you, but they long for repentance and mourning. So um, Chapman, uh, uh, Gary Chapman wrote a book, Five Love Languages, a lot of people are familiar with. He's also written one called The Five Languages of Apology. It's worth tracking down. So husbands, apologies without repentance will make your wife's heart hard towards you. A broken heart filled with repentance and mourning of your hurtful self-serving actions will, will heal hers. Wives, silence and physical distance will make your husband's heart hard towards you. A broken heart filled with repentance and mourning, your dismissive and dishonoring tone and actions will heal his heart. Somewhere along the line, someone's got to choose Christ first and choose their spouse. Matthew 5 out of the Amplified 4 said, Blessed, forgiven, refreshed by God's grace are those who mourn over their sins and repent for they will be comforted when the burden of sin is lifted. I'm not suggesting you, you, you're sinning against your spouse. Um, but I'm not sure what it is when I'm not following the words of Christ towards my spouse. I'm not sure what to call it other than painful. So in our response, um, we always have communion open to our left or right. I know that this is a sensitive topic. Um, you know, if you decide that you're going to pray with your, your spouse today, you might be wondering, well, what's people going to think about the condition of our marriage? I'll tell you, like I've tell you at any other time about coming to an altar or stepping out as a family, that most people are more concerned about what's going on in their life than they are in yours. All right. So, um, so in this moment of stillness, Father, uh, I don't know fully, fully what, you, what you've done, what you've spoken. I know relationships are always complicated with two people. Uh, we just have two different uh, outlooks, backgrounds, uh, pain points, joy points. We're just, we're just different. And yet... Yet that relationship, you established that relationship as the bedrock of our family and the bedrock of our society. And, and the enemy wants to tear down the culture, tear down our society, and he does so by trying to continue to uh, erode the quality and the depth of the marriage relationship. So regardless of, uh, of what, uh, from the smallest thing that this message was just a reminder, Lord, to couples that are silent towards one another and are still just trying to kind of, kind of motor through and push through. Lord, I pray today that you, um, that you will begin melting that resistance and that distance because your love for us We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.